It will be written up selectively for the newspapers the following morning. There may be a sketch of the speech in which the writer picks out the one aspect that has gone wrong or is easily lampooned. Although the days in which speeches were published verbatim, without commentary, have gone for good, the speech may even be analysed in some depth, with the best and worst passages highlighted and scrutinised. Even if the occasion is not one that warrants the attention of the nation, it will rapidly be found in other contexts. The days when the speech existed solely as a transaction between the speaker and those in the audience are largely past. A transcript of the speech will probably be made available on an intranet where the occasion will no doubt be broadcast. If it is not broadcast in real time, a recording of the occasion, certainly oral and probably visual, will be loaded onto the website later to the rest of the company sitting at their desks. Many speeches are multimedia events at the moment they occur. A transcript of the text may be circulated to members of an extensive corporate email distribution list. And yet, for all the splicing that occurs in modern media, this event also retains the aura it has had since the first orator stood before the Athenian polis and tried out the trick of repetition. Perhaps the source of the fear that afflicts so many people as they contemplate speaking in public is an echo of the essentially primitive nature of the transaction. This is communication, to put it in modern parlance, which is one to many, and the last instance of the public speech will, in that sense, be the same as the first. In that loneliness, we can also find the perennial, visceral attraction of the moment. The speech you're about to perform is therefore an echo of similar events held thousands of years before. It is hard to think of any other mode of communication that is essentially unchanged down the ages. The technological means of transmission is, at once simple and sophisticated, the medium of speech. Let's go back to the man who is walking onto a stage. He approaches the podium, where he stops clears his throat and starts to speak. The normal rules of conversation are about to be suspended for the time it takes him to expound his argument. Against all the expectations and regular predictions of its demise, public speech still counts. It always will, and it is a skill that needs to be mastered. Speeches still matter. Open any anthology of great speeches, and the chances are you will encounter a familiar litany. There are many speeches that feature in every one. They define the landscape of the tiny fraction of public oratory that we recall. Mahatma Gandhi's There Is No Salvation for India, from 1916. Franklin D. Roosevelt's The Only Thing We Have to Fear Is Fear Itself, 1933. Winston Churchill's masterpieces in the House of Commons from the depths of 1940. John F. Kennedy's Ask Not What Your Country Can Do For You, 1961. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream, 1963. And Nelson Mandela's An Ideal For Which I Am Prepared To Die, 1964, are staples of the anthologies among modern speeches. These are all, in their way, unique speeches, crafted 
and fashioned for the occasion by skilful writers. It is easy to suppose that they treat subjects long gone, that they are distant arguments whose eloquence remains like a monument, even as their relevance fades. Martin Luther King Jr.'s masterly preaching during the march on Washington, D.C. in 1963. John F. Kennedy's great inaugural chiasmus, Think not what your country can do for you. Winston Churchill's memorable description of the effect of communism after the war, An iron curtain has descended, which casts a victory over the victory presaged in his justly famous wartime speeches, which are themselves exemplars of cohesion and economy. But these speeches are more than the beautiful but ruined architecture that is a legacy of a lost age. They are still alive, and they speak to us still. Pick up an anthology and enjoy the skill with which the word...